Good morning, good afternoon. How you doing out there today? This is David Robert for the Marketplace of Ideas podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful, great, and beautiful start to your February. It is February the 7th, and this is episode 134. Man, that's a, that's a lot. But um, as we are barreling through the month of February, I just want to let you know that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, from Google Play, Podbean, iTunes, you name it, we are there. We also have some episodes that are looking to go up on YouTube, so look for that. And if pop culture is not your thing, which I don't know why it wouldn't be, because, well, if you're listening to this, um, we also have the Adult Fitness Podcast, as well as the um, the Strange Tales Podcast of Gods and Monsters. So check that out wherever you get your podcasts. We are moving and grooving, rocking and rolling, just like the kids say. I don't know if they say that, but what are you going to do? So today's episode is going to be brought to you... Uh, well, by Black History Month, actually. It's um, it's kind of interesting because uh, Black History Month, for those who don't know, in the month of February, the United States first started this tradition and it has filtered to other parts of the world where members of the black diaspora, if you have any lineage from Africa and the surrounding Caribbean um, islands, Haiti and the Dem- Democratic Republic, of the Congo, Niger, South Africa, you name it. It is a look and an examination and a celebration of all things that make up everything that's black, I guess, Um, from American black culture to Canadian black culture to uh, black people who live in London and Britain and other parts of the world. And so it has, um, it's always been interesting to me because I, you know, I'm black 12 months out of the year, and a lot of the names and faces and events that you hear talked about normally relate to what's going on and what has happened within black American culture, i.e. Jim Crow, the, um, the Southern, how should I put this, the, um, the very complex and complicated yet terrifying history. That is chattel slavery from the transatlantic slave trade to the millions of black enslaved people that came on ships charted from Britain, uh, charted through, um, sorry, uh, the British, the British Commonwealth, the French also got into it as well as the Belgiums and, uh, or Belgium society. It's, uh, it's quite a, a sordid and very disturbing history that we see there. And then there's also the history of joy and accomplishment and the things that were, you know, just overcome. People like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Huey Newton and the Black Panthers and James Baldwin and the marches on Selma and Alabama and what took place against Bull Connor with the Freedom Riders and black and white bathrooms and drinking fountains and separate but equal schooling systems, which they were never really, really equal. Um, Growing up in Canada, however, there's always this myth that Canadians were never racist and that there wasn't any slavery here and that this was where people followed under the Underground Railroad to get to freedom, the North Star and what have you, and Harriet Tubman and all of these individuals who were abolitionists who... We're going to break the yokes of bondage and head to the promised land, the promised land being Canada. And so growing up, you hear these stories and you hear about these, these people that did these amazing things against unbelievably terrible odds. The, the mere idea of a free black man or a free, a free uh, Negro would have been unheard of in that time period to where now when... My wife and I purchased our home, i.e. renting it from the bank. We did not have to fill out a form stating if I was black or if she was Caucasian or whatever the case is. We, they just cared about the money and how much those monthly payments were going to be. So a lot, has, a lot has happened 
civil rights movement and the the right to vote, the own, to own land, to marry who you want to marry, the um, Education Act of Brown versus the Board of Education. And unfortunately, we look at the pain, we look at the suffering, but we never really connect with just the humanity. And so because of that, there's been a bit of a backlash, if you would. A bit of a, sort of a, I don't want to say an underground movement of people who have sort of taken offense to Black History Month. We've seen people say, why could you, or how could you regulate my history, the history of people that look like myself from a full, a whole continent to just one month, the Subsequently, the also shortest month of the year in the cold, right after Christmas, right after everybody's had all their fun, then we're going to have Black History Month. But I think it's important. And I I think some of the things I want to point out with this episode is that for starters, it does it does feel like pandering to a to a certain degree, because at the end of the day, when people talk about anything to do with black history, we automatically think of slavery. We automatically think of Jim Crow. We think of picking cotton. We think of all the films and the television shows and literature that have littered and been just a part of pop culture in America and in the West from Roots to 12 Years a Slave to Django Unchained to In the Heat of the Night and to Kill a Mockingbird and to Mississippi Burning into... Um, actors like um, who have played roles such as um, Oh Glory with Denzel Washington, Malcolm X, um, Jackie Robinson, and it always felt as though to be somebody who was black in America or Canada or anywhere in the West, you almost had to be like superpowered. There was this idea, particularly with people from the Caribbean, that if you were born into um, into privilege, your parents that came from another country would always hold it over your head and treat it as if this was a sacred mission, that your parents struggled, they fought, they came on boats, they ducked immigration, they got married, and they struggled just so you could have a better life. And God forbid if you did not become an engineer, lawyer, or doctor, (laughs) then you would fail the assignment. And, uh, you know, they would never say it, but... Well, who am I kidding? Of course they'd say it. Uh, And and I'm just talking about Caribbean black parents. I'm not talking about African black parents. That's a whole whole other kettle of fish. Um, But some of the the, um, stigmas that we had ingrained in us from media, from watching television. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s. So to see what happened with um, with the war on drugs, just say no and... Reaganism and Reaganomics, as it was called, it there's a lot to kind of take away and to unpack. But I do have an article that I wanted to just read, and it was kind of looking at how people have sort of been pushing it back, pushing back against Black History Month and what that kind of means. And so this is on NPR. This was written February sixth on. Let me see if I can get the lady's name. Um, Sanja Dirks. Sandyaya Dirks. Okay, I hope I'm getting that right. So this was written by NPR, um, National Public Radio in the States. So think of RCBC. Basically, that's what they kind of have there. It's a very, um, I'd say, progressive radio station. But uh, this was written, and it says that they have a picture that says post-racist attacks in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, America's National uh, Red Cross Photography Collection. So here we go. About 10 years ago, Sukuri Hassan uh, Chilgamein tried to cancel Black History Month. Outfitted in a sandwich board with the words End Black History Month written across the front, he walked the streets of New York City looking for people to sign his petition to do away with it. To figure out what um, Tillman was up to, it helps to know that the other side of his place card read, Black History is American History. It also helps to know that he was filming 
all of this for a documentary he made that said it's titled More Than a Month. That movie explored an ongoing question about Black History Month. Rather than uplifting African-American accomplishments, does it instead maintain a segregated history of America? Some people think it was a stunt, a stunt, says Tillman. In some ways, it was one, but he was also being genuine. Um, Tillman says the core impulse for his petition to end Black History Month was rooted in his childhood. Both his parents were school teachers, and those posters of famous black people that got up uh, on the classroom walls and in the school hallways every February were in his house year-round. When he was little, Black History Month was exciting, but as he kept hearing the same stories of a few sanitized heroes repeated just one month a year, it began to feel insulting. We were invisible for 11 months out of the year, but now suddenly we're visible in February. What did it mean that we had a Black History Month, he started to wonder, and what would it mean if we didn't? Why did Carter G. Woodson come up with it? Talk to any group of historians about the meaning of Black History Month, and they will all mention the same name, Carter G. Woodson. We call him the father of black history, says Diana uh, Reman Barry, chair of the history department of the University of Texas in Austin. In 1926, Woodson founded the Negro History Week, which would go on into what we now know as Black History Month. The idea was to make resources available for teachers, black teachers in particular, to celebrate and talk about the contributions that black people had made to America. Uh, says Koroshina Wise Whitehead, the founding executive director of the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice at uh, Lalola University. Whitehead is also a former secretary of the ASALH, the Association for the Study of African American His Life and History, which Woodson founded in 1915. Woodson picked the week in February marked by the birth of Abraham Lincoln and the chosen birthday of Frederick Douglass, because those days were celebrated in his community. In this way, Woodson built on a black tradition that is already commemorating the past. He also understood that for black students to see themselves beyond their current situation, they had to be able to learn about the contributions that their ancestors had made to this country. The historical context of the movement is also key, according to Barry. African Americans were 50 or so years outside of slavery and trying to figure out their space in the United States, he says. That space has been violently, uh, let me see, desecrated by white supremacy. We were experiencing segregation, lynchings, mass murders, and massacres, says Barry. A few years before was 1919's so-called Red Summer, when white mobs attacked black neighborhoods and cities. Then in 1921 came the Tulsa Race Massacre. Along, alongside white supremacist violence was an attempt to whitewash U.S. history, excluding both the contributions and the realities of black people. This was the period when the statues of Confederate soldiers were erected and the lost cause myth uh, was tied into it. The lie that the Civil War was about preserving a genteel way of life and that slaves were well treated was becoming a dominant narrative, not just in the South, says Hassan Kwam Jeffers, a professor of history at the, at the Ohio State University. A complete revision and distortion of the Civil War, of slavery, of emancipation, of reconstruction was being deeply embedded into the American public education system, he adds. So let's talk about black people. By the time he was growing up in New York City public schools in the 1980s, Jeffries says Black History Month felt very much like, let's talk about black people from a couple, for a couple of days. It was the casual, unusual cast of characters. He said Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, a couple of black inventors, and then we'd move on. Says Whitehead, in school, all of a sudden, everything became about black people, right? So you're putting your mac and cheese and collard greens into the cafeteria. You're lining the halls with all this black art that would have been, <laughs> that would get taken down when February ended. Black History Month may sometimes feel tokenizing, but it's still necessary, says Whitehead. You can go to places, he says, rattling off state names where if you didn't have Black History Month, there would be no conversation at all. What we need is an inclusive and accurate American history, according to Barry. But American history remains a segregated space. When you go into American history courses, many of those courses are taught from the perspective of just white Americans and students. 
The paradox of Black History Month today, Whitehead says, is that we still need it, even if it's not enough. We want black history to be American history, he said. But we understand that without Black History Month, then they will not teach it within the American history curriculum. Which brings us to Tillman. And in answer to his question, what would it mean if we didn't have Black History Month? If... But for Black History Month, those stories wouldn't be told, Tillman says. Then we have a larger problem. That is not Black History Month, and that's not exactly a reason to keep it. There's a reason to fight for something better than Black History Month. Uh, so we got uh, parallels to Woodson's time. There have been some big, um, sorry, there have been efforts in some states and in some curriculums to integrate American history across the year making slow steps forward. But Hassan Jeffers said, the moment we are in right now, now this was written two years ago, um, the moment that we are in right now accurately parallels the time period in which Carter G. Woodson founded Negro History Week and January 6th. Once again, at the center of all this is the battle over who gets to control history. We see that same pushback now with this divisive stuff and the divisive issues stuff. So they're talking about what happened at the Capitol in America on January 6th when there was a failed insurrection. If we can just trout out Rosa Parks sitting on a bus and then put her back on the bus and not talk about it, that's fine, says Jeffers. But we don't want to talk about the society as a whole that supported and embraced Jim Crow. Uh, Jim Crow was a system of segregation in which basically everything horrible and awful that could be done to black people was under this sort of condition. It was basically apartheid's slower cousin, if you would. Uh, but we don't want to talk about society as a whole and that supported and embraced Jim Crow and the way in which inequality is literally written into the U.S. Constitution. Integrating black history into American history isn't some simple act of inclusion, Jeffers says. You can't just insert black people who invented things or who made notable contributions into a timeline. You have to start having to question what you assume to be basic truths about the American experience, the myth of perpetual prog progress and American, sorry, and American exceptionalism. All that crumbles... Jeffers says. But change is coming, he notes. The, undergrads, uh, under, the undergraduates Jeffers teaches don't necessarily begin with a full grasp of U.S. history, but many are now showing up in his class prospectively and precisely because they feel they haven't been told the whole story. They've been seeing all this happen over the last four to five years, the rise of racism, white supremacy, and hate, he says of some of his white students, and they're coming to college saying, okay, something isn't right. Uh, so the last part of this article here basically says, um, what was it saying here? So it basically goes on to describe um, how much Black History Month is still needed within the American um, education system. And I would actually say that within the Canadian school system as well. I myself growing up in Canada was privy to hear about the French connection to uh, Canada. We definitely learned about our First Nations, our Métis, Inuit, um, brothers and sisters who were the stewards of this land far before, you know, anybody landed on it. But there is sort of this weird, this weird sort of thing where we would sit there and listen to teachers tell us about Canada being founded and being discovered. And it was like, wait a minute, there were people here already for thousands of years. You don't, I couldn't go to like New York and say, I discovered, um, I discovered the, um, the Ford building or I discovered, you know, um, the New York Knicks. They'd be new to me. But I wasn't the one that found it. It was already there. So you're already starting out with this perception that European, I guess, people were the ones who discovered this. And, you know, there were just some, there were some natives here. And they weren't really using the land. They just kind of were in the way. So we kind of made use of it. And so when you kind of start from that aspect of it, now you're entering into a space where it's you're kind of starting on bad footing already. But I remember never hearing about Frederick Douglass or any of the intricacies of what went on with the Black Panther Party. 
Um, I never heard about the connection between Cuba and and um, the black the black power movement. I was never aware of what happened with um, Frederick Hampton, if I got his name correctly. How um, his division of the Black Panther Party was bombed, literally with with, with bombs um, in Philadelphia. We didn't we didn't learn about the grotesque and almost bar I gotta say a barbaric nature in which black men, black women would be hung and lynched. Babies would be cut out of their stomachs. Men would be castrated. Um, there's a photographer that I followed for a number of years, and he talked about how when he was um, going through the South, looking at old farmhouses, that he would find photo albums. And these photo albums would have pictures of the charred remains of lynched black men and women who had, you know, just been lynched and tarred and feathered right after church on a Sunday. And people would save body parts. And actually, it was... The narrative of what constitutes as slavery and how the South in America tried to reframe it with the daughters of the American Revolution, in which, if you think about this, let's take a step back. It's incredibly difficult and almost insanely indefensible to show any sort of pride and any sort of narrative of joy in a country that in its past fought against the other side of the country to keep the right to sell people. This is what the the lost cause and the, the South will rise and things of that nature where the anger of slave owners, you know, and the frustration that their way of life, that the economic profits that were made from the selling of people and their, you know, unpaid labor to enrich the pockets of plantation owners of sugar cane and well, not necessarily sugarcane, but um, tobacco and cotton and, um, and farming and, and everything else was, was very hard to defend. So if you have uncles and brothers and dads and cousins going off to war for the right to sell people, I don't know how you defend that. And so what you do is you revise history. You kind of make it, make it seem less than what it was. Um, I do have an article about that here. If I can just... Hold on a second here. Hold on. It's... Um, pretty sick. And one of the, if, if I could just rant for a little bit here before I read this article, the sad part about it is, is that to the victor goes the spoils. We've all heard that before. The person that has the golden rule makes the rules and the winner creates and rewrites history. So that, you know, that warlord that was pillaging and violating and stealing resources was really a, be a benevolent sort of freedom fighter. Even people such as, as disturbing as Pablo Escobar in recent memory tried to say that his drug trafficking was actually used as a spear to strike back at American imperialism and their colonialist um, ways against Colombia. When in reality, his drugs were hurting the very black and brown people that he, he wanted to up, he said he was uplifting. Pablo Escobar would commit some of the most heinous murders ever recorded. When he ran the Medellin cartel, I can never say it properly, it was not uncommon to have his enemies sawed in half. That their wives and, you know, daughters and girlfriends would be 
you know, sexually assaulted in plain view of villagers. They'd raise towns to the ground. In fact, when they were about to be extradited, he and his, um, his generals that were running their billion-dollar-a-year corporation of cocaine is, cocaine are, are, is, are us, basically, they, they attacked judges. All the while, he would give money to, um, to poor towns, and he'd build wells, and he'd build a school, and, and he'd, he'd feed people who were hungry because, you know, again, American, American imperialism was screwing with Colombia and, and causing a lot of their resources to, to go to corrupt politicians and things of that nature. But he played both sides. And that's what the South, that's what Mississippi and Alabama and Kentucky and Arkansas has tried to do particularly with the uh, daughters of the American Revolution. If you can downplay the fact that, you know, these, um, these parts of the United States that wanted to succeed from the Union were willing to fight, literally go to war, for the ability to keep selling people. And they'll say, no, it was about states' rights, and it was about the fact that, you know, the, the North was about to encroach their values on the South, and... The South was a genteel, a genteel place. I mean, that's all that, um, oh, what is that movie, um, Gone with the Wind was about. It was one big propaganda, propaganda to showcase how the South was uh, misrepresented. And that, you know, the Reconstruction era and all these sort of things that were going on, black people were better off as slaves, you know, they, they had a good... You know, they weren't equal, but they were treated okay. And, and the fact of the matter is you were still owned by a person, which is never okay in any context, in any time in history whatsoever. And to not know that, to not be taught that deliberately is a crime unto itself. Now... My aunt, God rest her soul, she was a uh, staunch Christian woman, true believer, and she did not like her son, my cousin, to watch films about, you know, racism, roots, and things of that nature, because he, it, she said it caused him to have a, a severe hatred towards white people. And he'd come out of those movies wanting to kill Whitey. I never had the same... Uh, feeling, but it did cause you to look kind of sideways at your white friends if you went to a movie together um, that had anything to do with slavery or racism in it. My dad um, hated going to any of those movies because he always felt that his white friends would be kind of looking at him, you know, like, hi, ah, see what you used to be, ah, you know, and obviously people have different uh, takes on these sort of films and this sort of entertainment. And there's a discussion to be had about what it means to watch these films and not make, not have deep dives about, you know, the, the intricacies of black trauma. And Jordan Peele actually does that really well in his films when he, ta when he actually produces a lot of these, um, these great movies like Get Out and Nope and, and um, Us where he showcases the, you know, the terror of horror with the real terror of, uh, of slavery. I've told people before, I'm like, I, a killer clown doesn't scare me, but, you know, an angry white mob coming at you, let me tell you, that's, uh, that'll scare anybody. But there was an article I wanted to read about the dangers of the daughter, Daughters of the American Revolution and kind of state why it's so important to have... Black History Month. So let me just see here if I could bring this up. Hmm, where is it? Ah, here we go. So the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution, or the DAR, is a lineage-based membership service organization for women who are directly descendants from a person involved in supporting the American Revolution. A nonprofit group, the organization promotes education and patriotism. Its members is limited to direct 
lineal descendants of soldiers or others of the American Revolution era who aided the revolution and its subsequent war. Applicants must be at least 18 years of age and have a birth certificate indicating that their gender is female. DAR has over 190,000 current members in the United States and other countries. The organization's motto is God, Home, and Country. And so... We look at the quick history here. So in 1889, the centennial of President George Washington's inauguration was celebrated and Americans looked for additional ways to recognize their past. Out of the renewed interest in United States history, numerous patriotic and preservationist societies were founded. On July 13, 1890, after the Sons of the American Revolution refused to allow women to join their group, Mary Smith Lockwood published the story of patriot Hannah White Arnett in the Washington Post asking, where, where will the sons and daughters of the American Revolution place Hannah Arnett? On July 21st of that year, William O. McDonald, a great-grandson of Hannah White Arnett, published an article in the Washington Post offering to help form a society to help form a society known as the Daughters of the American Revolution. The first meeting of the society was held on August 9th of 1890. So it was organized on October the 11th of 1890 at the Stratford Arms at the home of Mary Smith Lockwood, and the society started from there. Uh, there, so they basically were trying to rewrite history, and we're going to take a look at what they had to say. Sorry, my internet is taking a little bit, uh, a little bit long here. Um, so basically, so yes, uh, here's the article here. So this is written by the Washington Post on July 5th, 2022. Uh, a war without end. The DAR and the 40-year fight to honor Lena Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's the wrong one. Sorry about this. So the lost cause of the Confederacy. So this ties into the DAR, basically. So the lost cause of the Confederacy, or simply the lost cause, is an American pseudo-historical um, theory and historical uh, myth that claims the cause of the Confederate states during the American Civil War was just heroic, or the succession, or the tried succession, was just and heroic and not centered on slavery. First, <laughs> good Lord, enunciated in 1866, um, this garbage has continued to influence racist, racism, gender roles, and religious attitudes in the southern United States to the present day. The lost cause is false historiograph. Uh, much of it's based on rhetoric, mythologizing Robert E. Lee, a historic uh, figure who has been scrutinized by contemporary historians who have made considerable progress in dismantling many parts of the lost cause methods. Uh, beyond forced unpaid labor and denial of freedom to leave the slaveholder, the treatment of slaves in the United States often included sexual abuse and rape, the denial of education and punishments such as whippings. Families were often split up by the sale of one or more members, usually never to see or hear of each other again. By turning a blind eye to these realities, lost cause proponents reimagine slavery as a positive good and deny that any... Um, uh, any um, conditions of slavery was not the central cause of the American Civil War. Contrary to the statements made by Confederate leaders such as in the Cornerstone speech, instead they framed the war as a defense of states' rights and as necessary to protect their agrarian economy against supposed northern aggressions. The Union victory is thus explained as the result of its greater size and industrial wealth, while the Confederate side is portrayed as having great morality and military skill. Modern historians overwhelmingly disagree with these characterizations, noting that the central cause of the war was slavery. 
And there was such a thing called the Cornerstone Speech. Now, this is why Black History Month is needed, but it's kind of embarrassing that we still need it. Due to the fact that none of this stuff that I'm reading right now, I actually was able to engage with when I was in elementary or junior high or high school, or even further on into post-secondary. All of this stuff that I've learned, particularly about what went on with uh, black people in the States, what happened, hell, on the islands that my parents were born on, I had to learn on my own. And so this thing uh, called the Cornerstone Speech is also known as the Cornerstone Address. It was an oration given by Alexander H. Steffens, acting vice president of the Confederate States of America in Savannah, Georgia, on March 21st, 1861. The uh, person who gave this speech looks like a reanimated corpse, and um, I would have dearly loved to have met him to stick my foot in his face. But the improvised speech delivered a few weeks before the Civil War began defended slavery as a fundamental and just result of the supposed inferiority of the black race and explained the fundamental differences between the constitutions of the Confederate States and that of the United States. Um, it also talked about the contrast between Union and Confederate ideologies and laid out the Confederacy's rationality for succeeding. And so the Cornerstone speech is, is also called, um, is so called because Steffens used the word cornerstone to describe the great truth of white supremacy and black subordination upon which succession and the Confederacy were based. So here's just a little taste of it. Our new government's foundations are laid. Its cornerstones rest upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. Later in the speech, Stefan used biblical imagery, Psalm 118, verse 22, in arguing that divine laws consigned black Americans to slavery as the subordinate, um, as the sub... Oh my gosh. Sub stratum of our society. Our confederacy is founded upon principles in strict confirmation with these laws and conformity to them. This stone, which was rejected by the first builders, is become the chief of the corner, the real cornerstone in our new edifice. Um, so needless to say, the speech was given weeks after the succession of South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and then Texas. And less than three weeks after the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln as the 16th president of the United States. The war itself would not begin until the U.S. Base, bases at Forts um, um, Sumter was attacked by the Confederates in mid-April. So open, large-scale hostilities between the two sides had not yet begun. However, there had been isolated incidents such as the attack on the U.S. steamship Star of the West carrying supplies for Fort Sumter. Um, referring to the general lack of violence, Stefan stated that the succession had, to that point, been accomplished without the loss of a single drop of blood. So needless to say, when going back into history, it's apparent why some people don't want black history to be taught in schools. One of the reasons is because it, it just awakens and showcases the true horror in which black people had to live under within slavery and with the the start of, um, of Jim Crow, the Ku Klux Klan having to deal with a corrupt medical education, um, you know, religious setup that they weren't a part of. Like, just think of this for a second. You are somebody who was born into slavery and you're, so, you know, if we we're to look at the timeline, for more than 400 years upon American soil, your, you know, great, 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 great grandparents were slaves. In about a hundred year time period, you can have up to four or five generations take up that 100 year span. So if you look at that, you would have almost 20 generations or more under the slave master's whip. To describe how America, parts of Canada, Britain, France, 
certain African countries that made money by selling um, people who were the spoils of war to the transatlantic slave trade to showcase how much money was made, how much their economies flourished underneath um, this rule. It's heart-wrenching. It is... It almost ruins your faith in humanity. I was listening to a gentleman by the name of uh, Eli Wiesel, who wrote the groundbreaking book Night, in which it he describes the loss of his whole family to Auschwitz. He was a Orthodox Jew who lived in Transylvania, and he and his family were put on cattle cars, brought to... Um, to the never-ending night. It's one of the few books outside of the Bible that I've gifted to people as one of the most, yeah, one of the most poignant books I've read. That and the and the Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. If you um, if you ever have the uh, stomach for it, uh, think of it as Schindler's List, only ten times worse. And in it, he talks about how he lost his faith, he lost his humanity, he lost his ability to actually think that there was a God because he felt how could a God allow children to be thrown up in the air and then shot or have bayonets run through them and women and children stripped of everything their clothes, their dignity and then ushered to be burned up to six million of them and and then you look at the, the juxtaposition of the black holocaust that took place during slavery and then throughout the civil rights movement and it could almost ruin your faith in humanity. It could almost take away that ability to see the good in other people. And so, in learning about these truths, and learning about this history, and the people that fought against this horrid injustice, it's supposed to awaken feelings of frustration, of anger, of how the criminal justice system still bends towards sentencing black and brown people with far harsher sentences for crimes committed by their lighter-skinned brothers and sisters. Within America, anyways. Within Canada, we have uh, just a horrible system that has done, done in our Aboriginal and First Nations brothers and sisters to the tune where a lot of them are locked up or on reservations. Or in America, you have the... Uh, the cousin of that being the hood and the ghettos. It's these are these are, are are things that need to be brought up, and they will make people uncomfortable. And I think that's where a lot of the tension sort of stems from, because to bring up Black history, all the good, the bad, the ugly, the heroic and historic, as well as the terrible is to also shine a spotlight on how they were brought to these shores, how they were treated, how they were utilized, how they were discriminated against, how they were beaten and, and had their humanity denied to them. In, in a world that we have access to so much information and there's a fight against books and history and who gets to tell that history and who gets to share that the idea that we would try in some way to criticize what happened because it makes some of us feel uncomfortable or some people feel guilt or shame for what happened is not a reason not to tell it and so the big indictment that I found with our education system was that I had to find this stuff out well into my 30s I went throughout the whole school system not even knowing that residential schools, if we even want to take it to what happened to our, our First Nations people. Here in Alberta, where I, where I grew up, the last residential school that took children away from their families closed in 1997. I was in high school during that time period. So we're not that far removed from some of the worst travesties we've seen you know, in a, in a couple generations. The state of Loving versus the, the state of Virginia in which a black lady 
was going to marry her white, uh, her white husband, and they were locked up for it. Subsequently had to leave the state. I don't know where they ended up, but they brought it to the Supreme Court. Because on the books, it was still stated that if you, as a person who had one drop of black blood, were to marry somebody who's of Caucasian descent, it was illegal. It was seen as race mixing. It was seen as polluting the, the race. And you could spend time in jail for it. Which she did. It's, these are truths that need to be told and they need to be shared. Not just for this weird thing I like to describe as trauma porn. But just to look and say, we can do better. And yes, there were people that I sat next to that were white while learning some stuff uh, about you know racism and slavery. But I didn't blame them for it. Nobody has to feel guilty or ashamed about something they didn't do. But if anything, we should look to the past and say, okay, what was done there was disturbing. The lynching of innocent black people should never have happened. Similar to the hanging of women in the 1600s due to the Salem witch trials or, you know, the, um, the Red Scare in Hollywood with, with people trying to be outed as communists or McCarthyism, McCarthy, I can never say that word properly, um, but the reality that history and how mankind has treated mankind, it's a charnel house. It's, it's, it's a, it's a big bucket of, of disturbing chum <laughs> that, that we have to wade through. And it's horrid. But if we don't, things like Black History Month will still be required. And I think where I'd like to end it is that I personally love the fact that we have a month celebrating the accomplishments of what the black black people within the diaspora of all forms of black culture have done. From black people in Brazil to London to the Caribbean to the continent of Africa to places like Japan. We're everywhere. And... It does, it does mean something to celebrate it. Obviously, we don't, you know, you don't have Mother's Day every day or Christmas every day, but we have an event that we can celebrate and share our, share and, you know, appreciate the people who mean a lot to us, like Valentine's Day or a birthday or an anniversary. And yes, we should treat those people in our lives with the same dignity and love and respect and kindness every day of the week. And so... While there is a need for Black History Month, it is kind of sad that we need to have a Black History Month. That we're not learning in many of these curriculums about what happened, about the things that are still happening, and how we could move forward to a better future. And so I, for one, think we should still keep Black History Month. I don't think it's something that we need to get rid of, but I definitely feel it's something that needs to be shared more and all the uncomfortableness of it and all of the things that make people squirm and that are just terrifying to listen to need to be sat with. And I think this is where I want to end it because this is probably the most... targeted part of what I've been reading over the last few few months is that these horrible things happened and they were done by people for money. They were done by people for for prestige and you name it. Every, every bad thing under the book. And it's very hard to look at a country that claims to be the shining light on the hill and the democracy for the rest of the free world to emulate when it's when it start when its foundation was built on the backs of slave labor from land that was stolen and bamboozled away from first nations people and that had exploited its workforce of the you know the peasant class if you would to build the roads and infrastructure that the rich and affluent and business owners and landowners could enrich themselves with. It takes away that gloss. It takes away that, that narrative that America was a scrappy, you know, upstart country that broke away from Britain and, you know, freedom, justice, and liberty for all, and all men were created equal. 
But that just wasn't the case. For black men, they weren't even considered human beings. They were considered one-third human being. You should look it up. It's, it's disturbing. Some of the just straight-out lies that were told within the medical community and the, and the uh, religious communities and for technology and banking and it just everything was... All of the society that we see right now was not meant to have in mind the free black man. Or the voting woman, for that matter. And so, we're left with this... With this mess. Do we keep denying what happened in the past? Do we keep looking and trying to bypass it and sweep it under the rug and pretend like it wasn't at the center of what caused one of the bloodiest wars in, you know, in, in America's history? I don't know. But I can say this, that with the, the sharing of the internet and the access to so much information, it's becoming much, much harder to kill the narrative of what happened and what really took place. And so I, t- I kind of take comfort in that. I take comfort in the fact that there are people doing the Lord's work out there, trying to maintain uh, historical integrity and not having it being something that is taken apart and reformed to make it more palatable. Let's just think about it. How hard would it be to try to justify your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather owning and sexually abusing, you know, slave women or using them to enrich themselves. It makes you sick. And, and I, I think we have to, we got to keep our foot on the gas with this thing, keep our foot on the neck of the oppressor out there and do our best to, to keep shining the light bringing the truth out there so yeah uh, I, I again I'm all for Black History Month but it would be great if you know we had black history intertwined into Canadian history and into American history and into into um, European history it's you know there's such rich soil to be dug into and so hopefully we can um, move forward instead of backwards but we'll see I mean I mean, there is an election in the states this year. So, what did uh, what did Samuel Jackson say <laughs> in, in uh, Jurassic Park? Hang on to your butts, you know. But anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Thank you for entertaining the musings of a uh, of a uh, of a podcaster. Uh, thanks for lending me your ear. Like I said, we've got more episodes coming. Check us out on all the areas that you get your podcast from Google Play, Podbean, iTunes, you name it. We are there. But until next time, take care out there. Be good to one another out there. And be good. Be well. Take care.